If you would please turn with me to Proverbs chapter 2. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver and search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth, come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity, every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you, delivering you from the way of evil, from men of perverted speech who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and who are devious in their ways. So you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. This is God's word. Grace kids, you're now dismissed. You can now be seated as well. (laughs) Um, And parents, you're free to go if this is your first time joining with us this morning. All right, well, summer is officially here, and we are walking through the book of Proverbs this summer. Proverbs is obviously a a book of wisdom. Many of you know it as the book of wisdom. It It was curated by Solomon. He wrote much of it, not all of it, but Solomon oversaw the process of of putting this book that we now call uh, Proverbs together. And the purpose of the book, the, the immediate audience of the book are young royal men. So that's who, who Solomon is writing to, young royal men who will likely find themselves in a position of, of leadership and rule in, in some way. So that's the, the primary audience. And it's good because we should hear when we, when we walk through it, when we read these Proverbs, kind of this fatherly tone, kind of a loving father talking to a young impressionable son. But that doesn't mean just because it was written to them that it wasn't for us in the same way that, that you know, Paul wrote all these letters to churches, which is good because it locks the meaning in the context, but it's for all of us. And the same would be true of Proverbs. There's a, there's a guy named Dr. Bruce Waltke. He has what I consider to be one of the most helpful uh, commentaries on Proverbs out there. I'm going to be using a lot of his stuff. But he says the book of Proverbs remains the model of a curriculum for humanity to learn how to live under God and before humankind. And before we dive in, I kind of want to explain how I'm approaching Proverbs. Because there are different ways to approach this book that will affect kind of what you get out of it. 
So there are three main ways to approach this book. First, you have what would be called the topical approach. So some years ago, Tim Keller preached through Proverbs and he used this approach. And this is where you take a topic, say money, and you take all the Proverbs that talk about money, you put them together and you teach it. Okay, that's the topical approach. Then you have an approach called the textual approach. This is where you take one really important, famous whatever verse, like the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and you just preach it. So John Piper has done this, Charles Spurgeon used to do this, but, and I think these are good and helpful things, I'm not knocking them, but I think there's an even more helpful way to approach Proverbs, and I would call it, the, it's not, I didn't coin this term, it's called the expositional way. So Proverbs actually has sections, and sometimes, because we don't speak Hebrew, it's harder to read Hebrew, it's harder to identify them, but there are clear sections. And in these sections, there are topics. And in these sections, there are really profound and famous verses, but it's only in the sections that we get the context of these things. So what I've done is I've kind of, I've identified nine different sections. There's a lot more than nine in Proverbs, but I've identified nine sections that I want us to walk through this summer. And so Erickson did a great job last week with the first section, Proverbs 1, 1 through 7. Now we're jumping to Proverbs 2, which is a complete and coherent section. Actually, it's the whole thing is just one long, very complex sentence. So it's really it's easy to see once you're looking for it that it's one section. There's the same number of verses as there are letters in the Hebrew alphabet. That was not uh, uh, that didn't happen just by chance. They're, they're identifying this is a section, and so we approach it as such. And so this proverb is warning young royal men and all of us about the the danger of the allure of easy money and cheap love. So it's talking about sex. So I was thinking this week, like what, how strong an allure, easy money, and to use Waltke's words, easy money and easy sex are to not just our culture, every culture. I mean, there's a reason, this was an issue however many thousand years ago in Israel. And I was thinking, what if I went like to downtown Maitland and I don't know, I don't know if there's a, there's a there's probably not a building to do this. Let's identify some building and I go and I advertise that I am going to be giving instructions on, uh, I, I, let's say I label myself as somewhat of an expert because I know the Bible, but I'm going to give instructions on easy sex and easy money. I think I would pack that place out. <laughs> I think just that title would fill it. And I don't just think it. I've seen things like this happen before. In my campus ministry days, um, I had a friend who was on the campus of Old Miss and this is Social media was out, but it wasn't the primary way at that point in time that we advertised things. So he, put, he went to the union and put a big banner up that there was going to be an event, and he was going to be talking about how to have great sex. That was the banner. That was the title. And that place got packed. I mean, he couldn't even fit all the people that, want, that came in there. And then he began to teach from God's words that the best sex happens between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, where he gets that from and why that is. So, there's an allure that is clear on all of us to these things. And so, this is an allure that will harm us if we pursue it. And Proverbs 2 is all about that. So, I want to walk through Proverbs 2. And I just want to see, first, the warnings that we have. I want to see how God protects us from those allures. And then, lastly, the blessing on the other side of those temptations. All right, so we're going to start with the warnings. These are verses 12 through 22. You have the warning of the evil men and the forbidden woman. 
and we're going to start with the evil men. Verse 12, delivering you from the way of evil, from the men of perverted speech, who forsake the paths of uprightness to walk in the ways of darkness, who rejoice in doing evil and delight in the perverseness of evil, men whose paths are crooked and whose, who are devious in their ways. So both Jewish and Christian teachers and scholars for a long time have, have argued and largely agreed that these devious ways and crooked paths, they can include a lot of things, but it's mainly talking about your financial dealings. It's mainly talking about this allure of easy money. And so they, really, it's for a young ruler and for most people, the allure of easy money, and as is going to be seen in, here in a second, sex, those are two of the biggest allures that we're going to encounter as humans. And so they, it includes a lot, but this is the main point. And when I say easy money, I want to I want to define this thing. Easy money, I'm saying, is money that you take without regard for the honor of God or how it will harm you or others. So money that you take without regard to the honor of God and how it will harm you and others. And so we, I can't, we could think of a lot of examples of this allure of easy money in our life. And, and some are illegal, so these are the more clear ones. It's illegal to steal something. That's, that's easy money. That's not okay. We shouldn't steal. But it also includes things like, you know, living off of unemployment when you can work. I mean, you're not thinking about how that harms other people. I mean, I, I have a friend who owns a, young, a small restaurant and his entire family is having to scrape together to work at this restaurant right now because they can't find any employees because the people, there's so many people are choosing this easier path. Not realizing how it harms other parts of society. Um, other examples. This wouldn't be illegal necessary, but suing somebody just because you see dollar signs? I mean, that, that's, that's easy money. That's something we should avoid. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians. It includes being dishonest on your taxes or how you use your stimulus money. But there are other categories that, while not illegal, would still fall into this category of folly, of the folly of the allure of easy money. Things like high percentage, you know, short-term high percentage um, loans, unnecessary credit card debt. And I want to be really careful here because I'm not going to say all debt is is bad. Um, I, I get that, you know, with houses, there's some, you have these calculated debts that can can turn out well. A lot of people take out debt for the education. I think too many, too much is taken out for education for what it's worth, but I have a category for education being one of those things we take out debt for because we'll be able to pay off after. Sometimes there's crises. When Angela and I were in our 20s and she had cancer, we took out some debt to pay some medical bills. So I've got categories for that, but that's very different than wanting things you can't afford and putting on a credit card things like watches and clothes and vacations uh, toys, cars, whatever it is, things that you just want now and you go ahead and put it on a credit card. That falls into this category of easy money. Risky gambling. So I thought about this a lot this week. When we, were, when we lived in Oxford, Mississippi, um, we, we had a casino called, in a city called Tunica, not far from us. And I had some friends, they say, hey, we're gonna go to Tunica. I, I'm budgeting $30 to lose or $50. It's okay, that's the cost of a good time. I'm not gonna lose more than $30 or $50. I'm not gonna give that person a hard time. But then I knew another person who was unwise with his money, couldn't pay his bills. So he took everything he had to Tunica and put it on the roulette table. All right, that's not wise. That's easy money and it can go very bad for you. When I was in college, 
uh, at Florida State, we went on one of these gambling cruises. Like, so you get on a, 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 a ship that goes far enough off shore to where it's, you're no longer within the, the jurisdiction of the U.S. laws and you can gamble. And I remember on the way back, when we were coming back in, there was this, this older woman. I remember thinking she was an old woman. She's probably my age now that I think about it. But she was sitting there on the way back. We were approaching the line when all the gambling machines were going to turn off. And she's crying, just profusely crying as she puts her final remaining tokens and, and pulling these slots because she's lost everything that she had. And she's just hoping that she can redeem and get some of it back. And for me, that woman crying, going back into port is this perfect example of the way that easy money can ruin you. So next week, Mike Graham is going to teach a more holistic understanding of money from Proverbs 10. But my hope here is just to see the danger of the allure of easy money, but also to see that in this proverb, it's, a, it's assumed that we're going to have this temptation. It's assumed. And they, Proverbs gives us ways that we can minimize the temptations in our life by who we hang out with and other things. But it still assumes that if you live in this world, you are going to have this temptation, both the young royal men and all of us. And this is why verse 12 says we need to be delivered from this. This word is literally snatched away from this temptation. And we're going to come back to that in a little bit. Verse 13 says these men walk in the ways of darkness. Do you walk in financial darkness? If all the ways that you use your money came to light right now, everybody could see it, how would that make you feel? If that gives you a lump in your throat, this proverb is for you. I know a pastor whose, whose ministry has been extremely blessed. He's, everybody would know this guy. And he, and because he's, the ministry's been blessed, he gets a lot more money than your average pastor. That's just the reality of it. So he has a group of men once a year he will bring together and he puts all of his tax returns and bank account information on the table for these men to look at because he wants to live in the financial light. And so for, for, to live in the light financially, not in the darkness that these evil crooked men are, to do that, it probably means bringing Christians into your life, somebody who can see your finances and walk you through it. So are we living in the financial light? Because chasing easy money, it will catch up to you. It can ruin you. It will corrupt your heart. And some people, according to verse 14, even delight and brag about their shady business dealings. And we know from Proverbs 3.32 that the Lord finds this repulsive. And so you can hear this Hebrew father asking his royal son, whose words do you find more compelling? Whose speech is more sweet? Is it the father or is it these evil men? That's the first warning against easy money. The second warning is against what we're calling cheap love. And as a caveat, before we dive into it, I do want to say, if adultery is a part of your story, this is a hard proverb. And, and I want you to know, I, want, I hope that you will see that I handle this in a way that both bears the seriousness of it, but also the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in it. All right, so here's where we come to the forbidden woman, starting in verse 16. So you will be delivered. The NIV reads, wisdom will deliver you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death and her paths go to the departed. 
None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. So to understand this, we have to understand how Solomon is using women. Because all too often, because you have, you have the forbidden women, you have the evil men, you also have lady folly and lady wisdom. And so what Solomon is doing is, I mean, think we're training young royals. He's using things that will be attractive to them. He's, he, you, have, you have attractive kinds of wisdom, you have attractive kinds of foolishness. And likewise, you have, you have attracted kinds of, of godly women, and, and there are some ungodly women that are, that are very attractive for other reasons. So he's looking at all the things that we're attracted to and he's personifying wisdom in these people. He's not saying women are evil and need to stay away from them. That's not what he's saying. I mean, he's saying Lady Folly, she, she's attractive in certain ways, but that attraction offers something that's fleeting. Lady Wisdom over here offers something that you will never lose. And so that's at Proverbs 31. We're not talking about a perfect wife, like how any woman can be a perfect wife. Proverbs 31 is talking about lady wisdom as the perfect wife, personifying folly, personifying wisdom. So keep that in mind because all too often, half of the women in the room are just shamed by the teaching of this proverb and that is not the goal. Back to the forbidden women. It's a proverb that is a call to all of our hearts, men and women, to check our hearts and be sexually wise. Okay, there's lots of parts of wisdom and this is one part of wisdom. Proverbs says, don't fall for the allure of smooth words. Words can make you see something that's not really there. The proverb says, don't sleep with a woman who forsakes the companion of your youth. That means she's married. Lady Wisdom, who is faithful, will surely, she's the one that's going to bring you to flourishing and blessing and all and the, the promises that God has for these young rulers who decide to follow the path of wisdom. Don't follow these fleeting desires. And that, as I said, has application to both men and women. But we need to see that we were clearly talking about sexual relationships because in verse 19, Solomon literally says, none who go into her come back. The proverb is not making sex and any sexual indiscretion. That's not the unforgivable sin. He's saying that he's making folly, fully giving in and pursuing folly. That is this evil gate from which if you follow that, you will never return. And we'll come back to that as well. But because of that, much more than sex is at stake here in this proverb. He's talking about a lot more. And so I just, I'm, I'm going to extra lengths to make sure that we see the metaphor here. Sex in these women is being used as a metaphor for folly. And in this area of sexuality, there is application. And, I, and I'll get to the application. I just want to make sure it's clear how Solomon is using these women. So we've talked about what God's wisdom says about practically living financially. Now we talk about what God's wisdom says about our sex lives. A few things. First, many people think that the Bible and Christianity is a real downer because of the restrictions that we get on sex. It's like, it's just, they look at it, it's just not fun. Like the ways that you talk about sex between one woman and one man for the rest of their life, it doesn't sound fun. And 
what, what we don't realize when we hear that is it we, it's the old fireplace in the fire or fire in the fireplace analogy. Like you put fire in a fireplace and it's good and it does the thing that it was intended and designed to do. It blesses the people in the house. Fire in a fireplace, good. Fire on the couch, bad. That could burn the whole house down. There is a design that God has and it's not a downer. It's wisdom from the creator who created us and this thing called sex. And God designed sex to be this kind of oneness mechanism. So when we were married, the Bible says we become one flesh. And so there's, that's true physically, but somehow that's true emotionally. It's definitely true financially, true spiritually. And what sex does is it reinforces this oneness mechanism. You are one and it reinforces that fact. And every now and then, I, for me, it's kind of fun when we see science catching up with what the Bible has to say. And so we now know because of our scientific progress that endorphins are released in our brain when we have sex and that makes us like that person more. And so the secular world calls that the irrational attachment. This is one of the reasons it's, it's a healthy person can't have a one night stand and forget about it. Like it's, it, there's physiological things going on that, that create this oneness. It, that's what it's supposed to do. And one implication of that is that if you're having sex with somebody who you're not married to, that oneness mechanism is working. It's doing its thing, and it's probably, you're getting the effect of the oneness mechanism without being one yet, and that prevents you from being able to really faithfully discern, is this the person I should marry? So it hurts that process. But when you have sex with one person, in the context of marriage, knowing that person well, that person knowing you well, feeling safe and secure with this person, that is God's design, and it's better than any offer of cheap love you will see anywhere else. Second, if you are here today and you are not married, I want you to hear me say that sex is not the ultimate thing. It's not the ultimate pleasure. It's not the ultimate thing that we can aspire to. This is, this is not an identity issue. Our identity is so much bigger than anything about our, who we have sex with. Our identity is something that God has determined and God has said that not everybody is going to be able to have sex. Not everybody's going to get that gift. And for some of you, that's a season. For some of you, that's, that's the rest of your life. But God, when he does something like that, he often gives another blessing. Because many of the most influential Christians who have ever lived were so because they didn't have the burdens that come along with sex. And when I say burdens, I love my four little burdens. I love them. But there's a lot that I can't do that single people can do. And I mean, this, this was the Apostle Paul. This was Augustine. Fast forward. This was C.S. Lewis for most of his life. This was John Stott. And this was Jesus Christ himself. He's not taking anything away that he didn't have taken from him as well. So it's, it's a thing that's beautiful and God made, but on the order of importance, it's not up there with who you are in your identity. So don't let anybody make you feel like less of a human if you are not in a place where God has opened that door to have sex. Third, I mentioned this before, I do think that sexual infidelity here is actually a paradigm for spiritual infidelity. So marriage 
is often the metaphor that the prophets use to communicate the infidelity of the Israelite people to God. So I want to be really clear. I'm not saying that Christians can't mess up and be redeemed. Because what's going on here is not, it's, it's not primarily just what you must do. There's spiritual implications to it. No matter what you have done in the areas of money and sex, you can always come back to Jesus Christ. You can always be redeemed and accepted, no matter what you've done. This proverb is talking about those who stay on this path to death. Those who don't repent of their wickedness. Those who pass through these gates on the path of death, these gates of evil. And in both warnings, the money and sex, the pro- Solomon uses the, the imagery of paths. And so Angela and I, we just, I would say read, we listened to Little House on the Prairies. First time I've ever listened to it. I'm about 90 years late to that game. But I was enthralled by this little family in the 1870s moving west. And when they, as they moved out into the west, their goal was to move past Kansas into Indian territory and settle. And there, of course, was no, no maps, no GPSs, no place to stop and ask for directions. The only indication you had for where you should be going were these cart paths. And when I say paths, it's just like the grass was beat down a little bit where, where these cart, these carriages had gone before. And at one point, they come to the, they're in the middle of nowhere, and the paths fork. One goes uphill, one goes downhill. And you have this feeling like everything about the future of your life depends on this choice. And that's just what part of the country you settle. The path illustration that we have in Proverbs chapter 2 is literally eternal life or eternal death. The stakes could not be higher. And the stakes are not simply who you have sex with. The stakes of the spiritual implications here are are you on the path to death or on the path to life? So there's spiritual implications. I have had the privilege of walking with a number of men after they've cheated on their wives. And it is a privilege. And every single instance, these men have said two things. First, this was not worth it. Had I been able to see all that would come about this, this was not worth it. And secondly, they would say, I was not in a spiritually healthy place. God wants you to thrive sexually, but that comes from thriving spiritually. That's the call of the proverb. There are two paths. One path humbles itself to acknowledge that there's a creator and he might have something to say about our flourishing. And the other path pridefully decides that I get to dictate the terms of my own flourishing. And here's how serious our plight is. None of us in our natural states has the ability to discern between those paths any more than this little young family out on the prairie. We don't know which way that we should go. We don't have that ability. Both of these warnings say we have to be delivered. We have to be snatched out. I said I was coming back to that. So what is it that God is doing to snatch us out of these allures? What is it that he's doing to take us off one path and put it put us on the other to help us discern and see everything. This is verses one. These are verses one through 11. This is the protection that God has given us. Verse one, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. So this word, 
receive is important. It's accept. It's saying, not, don't make this just head knowledge. This has to get in you. This has to be in your heart. To just, uh, just hear these words and not embody these words and not desire these words is like learning, like reading how to ride a bike versus actually going and experiencing and riding a bike. And Solomon says we need to have these with us at all times. That means ready to go. We can employ them when and how we need to employ them. And the next three verses make it clear that this is a heart issue. This is not a head issue. Verse 2, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it as hidden treasures. And I think one of the major misunderstandings of head and heart in Christianity comes when, when we think that if, if we can just teach somebody enough Bible, they'll give their allegiance to God. If we can just get enough Bible inside of somebody, they're going to, they're going to voluntarily see their faults and go from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God. But that's not what the Bible teaches. Verse 5. He's talking about after you've searched for it with all your heart, you know, so you can't change your heart, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and then the knowledge of God. So Waltke again, he says in his commentary that allegiance to God precedes understanding. There's an awe of God that, that by God's grace through the power of the Holy Spirit, we see that we didn't see before. It's like the old song, I once was blind, but now I see. You know, we're not wise enough to see, we're not moral enough to see, we're not spiritual enough to see. God just makes us see. So does that mean that we don't teach the Bible to unbelievers? No. Does that mean that we don't teach our kids the Bible before they believe? No. My hope is that, that our children, when they believe, will already have a lot of Bible to then understand how to use and interact with. But we can't go so far as to think that, to not see that all the head knowledge in the world of the Bible isn't actually going to change our heart. That's something that only God can do. So we remember this is a heart issue because we have a heart problem. We are all ravaged by sin. In our natural states, sin, sin is in every faculty we have. It's in our bodies. We know that because we age and we die. It's in our minds. It's in our hearts. None of us, and this is like, this is Orthodox Christianity. Nobody d debates this. In our own natural state, sin has so ravaged us, no one has the ability to even see Jesus as the answer. The Holy Spirit has to do that. Now, in church history, lots of disagreements on how the Holy Spirit does that. But we all agree, the Holy Spirit has to do something to overcome our sin, or we will never incline our hearts towards these words. And here we come to the great news of the proverb. Verse 7. He stores up wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice and equity and every good path. For wisdom will come into your heart and knowledge then will be pleasant to your soul. Discretion will watch over you. Understanding will guard you. So where does the protection come from? From the Lord. The Lord snatching us off the path of death, putting us on the path of light. And does that mean that no unbeliever can ever make a wise decision? No. 
This is the doctrine of common grace. We talked about it at your hotel the other night. So there, there, there's some grace that's given to unbeliever and believer alike. The sun shines and the rain rains on un, unbeliever and believer alike. There are animals that have instinctual wisdom. There are non-Christian military leaders who have strategic wisdom. And there are some people who just have good moral wisdom. And biblical wisdom, while it encompasses those kinds of things, it goes much deeper than that. It goes to the heart because God isn't just concerned about protecting us from easy money and cheap love. God is concerned about protecting us from hell where our, nat- our hearts will naturally take us. He wants to call us and redeem us and rescue us by winning us onto the path of life. God is jealous for your affections. He's more, more jealous for your affections than he is just not wanting us to do dumb stuff. He wants you to love him more than dumb stuff. He wants you to love him more than the things that allure us but will destroy us. And as I said earlier, this is the reason that in lots of the Bible and lots of the Old Testament, and I think what's going on here, this, this marital infidelity is really talking, pointing to spiritual infidelity. And this is something that Solomon writes a lot about. Proverbs 6, he comes back to this. And then in Song of Solomon or Song of Songs, he writes this book. And the book is, an, is, is talking about Jesus' relationship with his church. And he teaches that through the allegory of a young husband and wife. And so it's interesting to see same author how all this fits together because in Proverbs 6, he has another warning, don't sleep with another man's wife. And, and Solomon says that the wrath of that man can never be satisfied. The, the, the husband of the wife that you've engaged with. And he said, you can sell all your possessions, give everything you have to that man, and he will not want those things more than he will want your life for what you did. And then, in Song of Solomon's or Song of Songs, we pick up in chapter 8, and the narrator of this love story between the man and the woman representing Christ and his church writes this, and you can hear Proverbs 6 in it. Love is as strong as death. Jealousy is fierce as the grave. Its flashes are flashes of fire, the very flame of the Lord. Many waters cannot quench love, neither can floods drown it. If a man offered for love all the wealth of his house he would be utterly despised. So what we see in this is the Lord is primarily about your affection. He is a jealous God and Proverbs is not merely giving us earthly wisdom about how not to commit adultery. He's giving us categories to understand how fiercely he loves us and the lengths he will go to punish anyone who threatens his relationship with us. He doesn't want you chasing the sinful prophet because all the prophet in the world will not be worth your relationship with him. He doesn't want you profaning marriage with infidelity because it's meant to reflect the fierceness of his love. But not only is the jealousy of the Lord a thing to be feared, it's a blessing of faithfulness worth pursuing because of the blessing that's on the other side of this temptation. This is where we finish. So this is verses 20 through 22. And the blessing is twofold. It's quick too. So you know. First, the first part of the blessing is that we will live the way God has designed humans to live, and that's going to go well for you. So there's a blessing in this life. Verse 20. So you will walk in the way of the good and keep the paths of the righteous. So Waltke, in his commentary, he, he 
says, you know, this word good, it, 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 the parallel words would be words like justice and righteousness and upright. And so when you live in this way, it not only goes well for you, it actually goes well for those around you as well. You're not just, it's, this isn't just a blessing for your flourishing. You will be contributing to other people's flourishing. You won't experience the chaos that easy money and cheap love bring. You'll experience the shalom that God wants you to experience. So shalom means peace. It means things the way they ought to be. And so when we're following lady wisdom and we're not following lady folly, it has so much more than just doing, managing our money well and managing our sex lives well. We will be flourishing. We will represent the, the way things ought to be in this world. People will be blessed by it in our proximity, but the blessing doesn't stop there. The second blessing is on the, that is on the other side of this temptation is in these last two verses. You will remain in the Lord and not be cut off. 21, for the upright will inhabit the land and those with integrity will remain in it, but the wicked will be cut off from the land and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. So many people have mistakenly seen this to be the promised land of Israel. That's, that's the promise that Solomon is making is much bigger than the promised land. There's, there's overlapping, there's, there's some overlapping of the promises, but they're fundamentally different. Solomon is referring to the very ground that gives life. He's referring to the earth. There's going to be a day where God rids the world of sin and wickedness and death and the earth will remain. It will be resurrected in the new heavens, the new earth and so will his followers be resurrected on that day. So there's overlapping promises because they're both good gifts. Uh, both make living in the land dependent on keeping commandments. Both solidify his blessing to those who are loyal to him and both threaten that disloyalty will tear you away from it. But the main point is that for those who follow Lady Wisdom, for them, they will remain, they will be resurrected and remain on the resurrected good earth and not be cut off from it. And just so I can be really clear, really clear before I finish, those who are cut off from the land are not those who make bad decisions in areas of sex and money. The kingdom is full of people who have made bad decisions about sex and money. Paul writes to these people in Corinth with uncomfortable and then very good news. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. But here's the good news, church. And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So the kingdom isn't made up of people who make good decisions. The kingdom is made up of those who follow Lady Wisdom to Jesus Christ and then lean on Jesus Christ for true wisdom in this life. That's what this proverb is about. And Proverbs 2 is telling us there's not some standard in areas of money and sex that we have to, we have to live up to to gain God's grace. Proverbs 2 is saying, you can't do it. You can't do it. But God can, through Jesus Christ coming and taking the penalty for our sin, redeeming us, 
opening our hearts through the Holy Spirit and making these words in the Bible, in the Proverbs, all of a sudden sweet and pleasant and appealing, more appealing than anything that Lady Folly could tell us. That's the purpose of Proverbs 2. Let's pray. God, I thank you that there is such good news that none of us is going to reach this. We're not, we're not given some sort of standard in sexuality and money that we have to live up to or else. You fully redeem us no matter what we have done. Now we get to want to be wise in these areas. So I pray that the grace of Jesus Christ would, would go deep where it needs to go deep this morning. All of us in this room have failed in these areas. And I pray that the feeling in this room would not be shame or guilt, but that it would be a deep desire to run to you and to lean on you for wisdom in these areas. Because you love us, you designed us, and you designed our flourishing. We thank you, we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.